The reading for today's sermon is from James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask. You ask, sorry, and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, cause your spirit, we pray, to take these words and speak them afresh to us. You've brought us in your sovereign goodness over countless, countless generations through many different paths to this moment with the intention of doing good to us as your people. And we thank you for that. And we ask now that you would fulfill that good purpose in us so that Jesus would be glorified and his church strengthened and preserved from these quarrels of which your servant James warns us. Have mercy on us, we pray, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. And let me add to Pastor Neil's welcome, particularly a, a warm welcome to you. If you're visiting us today, if this is your first time here, uh, if you're returning after a uh, sojourn somewhere else. It is wonderful to have you with us. Um, it's a tremendous blessing always when we have um, people here. Uh, it's actually a, a sad moment as well. I believe this is the Alexander's last Sunday. Is that correct? Uh, we're going to miss you. Mr. Alexander, already in California, I think, um, doing the next thing. Um, we hope you'll come back and visit. You better come back and visit. <laughs> or we'll have to come and visit you. Um, but the Lord bless you in the next stage of your journey. So James chapter 4. In 1706, there was a grand total of one Presbyterian denomination in the whole of America. It was called the Presbytery of Philadelphia. It was founded by seven ministers representing churches in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Maryland. And over the next three decades, as the population of this continent grew and expanded and the geographical reach uh, stretched further, the presbytery expanded and, uh, while remaining united, became three presbyteries. But at the same time, over those decades, there were growing tensions. The rumblings began in the early 1730s. Uh, ostensibly, the trouble came about because of controversies, bet- what, what became known as the old side, new side controversy. And as some of you who have read some church history might know about that. It was to do with the First Great Awakening uh, in the 1720s to the 1740s and different reactions to the kinds of things that Jonathan Edwards and others like him were doing and experiencing. Uh, unfortunately, these tensions were exacerbated by ethnic tensions. Uh, many of the old siders were Scotch or Irish Presbyterians, and many of the new siders were New Englanders born on this continent, and that didn't help with the tensions that grew. And finally, in 1741, the Presbytery of New Brunswick was expelled. 
they were newsiders and rather too sympathetic to uh, some of the things that the old siders didn't want. And that was so 35 years after Presbyterianism arrived in America, we had our first major split. Since then, the trend has continued. And depending on which historical sources you look at and how many Presbyterian denominations uh, they, they know about, it looks either bad or really bad. A uh, rough estimate is that in the 300 years or so since then, there have been about 20 splits in Presbyterian denominations in this country during those three centuries. That's probably an underestimate, actually, because I, I know myself of Presbyterian denominations that are quite small that have split in that time that aren't in the major historical sources. But roughly speaking, every decade and a half in America for the last 300 years, a Presbyterian denomination has split somewhere. Now, it's not actually quite that bad. Well, okay, that is pretty bad. Um, the, the family tree of Presbyterianism is quite complicated. So if there's a split somewhere, it might not be that there's a split in our particular branch of it, if you see what I mean. Um, it might be that some other denomination that is unconnected with us is the next one to fall. But if you look in and try and figure out, okay, roughly, well, how long on average in the last three, dec- uh, three centuries have you had to be Presbyterian in this country uh, to experience a split? The answer is somewhere between about 40 and 80 years. So what that means is, Uh, a cradle-to-grave Presbyterian will, on average, live through two major splits in their, one or two, maybe, major splits in their denomination during their lifetime. I wonder how you react to that. Uh, Let me give you a couple of initial comments, just as I see things. Uh, First up is, some of the divisions though always regrettable, and any division is regrettable, some of the divisions took place for good reasons. We thought last week, didn't we, about J. Gresham Machen and the, the uh, regrettable but necessary division in which he was involved from the old Presbyterian Church of the USA to found the uh, OPC because of the increasingly liberal tendencies of that former denomination. Um, and it's, it's sadly tragically true that sometimes adherence to the truth requires us to separate from people who have actually drifted from the gospel. It's not, it's not the case that unity trumps everything. It's the truth that unifies. And if the truth is lost, then, well, unity in Christ can't be preserved. That said, it's not always obvious even that those good divisions, the necessary divisions, have always been handled in the best way. If you look back at the history of uh, even that division, it seems that Well, there were some other factors involved, and we'll think about what some of those things might have been um, in a few minutes' time. That's the first observation. The second thing to point out is that there's a bit of a sampling bias going on here. Probably Presbyterians aren't any worse than anybody else. It's just that our uh, ecclesial polity allows us to split denominationally much more easily than anybody else. Think about it. If you know anything about the Roman Catholic Church, you will know that there is horrific infighting all the time in the Vatican and in dioceses and squabbles and fights, but they can't split because their polity kind of won't let them. There's only one pope, and they can't, you know, they, they all want him. I mean, they have been, they, they've come pretty close at various points to something like a schism, but um, it doesn't look like denominational division. So maybe uh, the problem in Presbyterianism is exacerbated on the visible side because our doctrinal tensions can so much more easily result in splits. You don't tend to get splits so much in Episcopalianism either, although there have been some. 
Um, independent Baptists don't split because there's nothing to split from. Yeah, but, but, but actually, uh, I forget who told me this, a, a conversation between a Baptist and a Presbyterian. So, so you know, Presbyterian lamenting all the divisions in his own denomination and asked the Baptist, so what do you do when you have a, when you have a disagreement? They say, oh, we just leave the church and start a new one. Which really isn't much better, is it? Um, so probably on balance, I think we don't want to beat ourselves up any more than we want to beat everybody up. We're probably about averagely bad when it comes to our inability, uh, along with most other Christians across the Western world, to hold together over time. Something akin to a doctrinal or some other kind of division that would split a denomination, if it were possible, once or twice in an average human lifetime. It's not exactly what Jesus probably had in mind, is it? May they be one, Father, as you and I are one. And the question I have for you today is, is that what you want? And I'd like you to think about that quite carefully. Is that what you want your denomination to look like? our denomination to look like? Is that what you want your, our, church, congregation to look like? Do we want the relational carnage? Do we want, well, no more Sunday afternoons with that family. Do we want the bitterness and the frustration and the hostility and the ending of fellowship with people that we love? Do we want All the chaos and heartache and carnage and self-righteousness and everything else that goes along with that kind of attitude to the way of being the body of Christ together. Because if we don't, then we really, really, really need to pay attention to James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Because here, James is going to explain what causes quarrels. Can you see? Chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels? What causes fights? among you. And if we want to avoid it, we have to know what causes it. If we want to put a stop to the divisions, we have to know how the divisions start. We need to think really, really carefully about what these three verses and in future weeks, the following few verses have to say. Because if, and here's the promise of hope for this morning, if we are able to rightly identify what's actually going on, what actually has been going on for the last 300 years in this country, and frankly, everywhere else across the world, in lots and lots of different ways, where splits, when necessary, have been handled badly and mostly haven't been necessary at all and shouldn't have happened. If we want to know what's going on so that we can stop it, we need to listen. And James, if we have ears to hear, will tell us what's going on. Just to recap briefly about where we've been um, uh, getting to in the book of James, those of you who've been with us, we'll know that James chapter 3 begins kind of a new section, uh, warning about the dangers of the tongue. The tongue, which of course is the thing that in chapter 4 is going to be the source of the quarrels in lots of ways. The tongue is like the rudder that steers the ship, one careless word, and suddenly you've committed yourself to something. The tongue, chapter uh, chapter 3 verse 5, is like a a spark that can set a whole forest ablaze. The the tongue um, is a restless evil full of deadly poison, chapter 3 verse 8. And so we had to begin by thinking, okay, what is it about speech which is so destructive? And and then chapter 3, verses 13 to 18 moves on a stage and then says, okay, what's the underlying issue of character? Is there a single temperamental characteristic which if we could think carefully about this and embrace this, this would actually help us to, to stop 
our squabbles and quarrels and arguments? And the answer is, yes, there is. There's one, it's meekness. Remember meekness, Numbers chapter 12, Moses, uh, Matthew 27, Jesus. Meekness is the willingness rather to be slandered than to answer back. It's really hard to have an argument with somebody who's not talking. And meekness will just take the abuse rather than escalating the dispute. And there are many, many other, what should we say, uh, correlates of meekness. That It's the character trait which will produce in us the peaceableness which will land us in verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if you get to the end of chapter 3, you're thinking, right, now I want to use my tongue, when I use it at all, which will be less often, to make peace. Right, now, so what actually causes the quarrels? Let's get to the nitty-gritty, chapter 4, verse 1. And the answer is twofold. It seems uh, to me that you can analyze, if you like, what James has to say under two headings. The first is our desires are either ungodly or conflicted. And the second is that our prayers are either absent or corrupted. There's something wrong with our desires and there's something wrong with our prayers. I'm going to spend most of our time thinking about our desires, not because our prayers are unimportant, but because there's a fellowship lunch to be waiting for during which you can ask me more about prayer if you'd like to. So, without further ado, our desires are either ungodly or corrupted. This is what James says is the first reason why we quarrel, why Presbyterians fight, why Christian churches split. Our desires are either ungodly or corrupted. Look with me, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, very forceful turn of phrase, Is it not this, that your passions, your desires, are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Our desires are either ungodly or corrupted by something else. Uh, Notice uh, the first thing to point out about these verses. Notice what James doesn't say. And this is kind of striking. When you think about the history of Uh, reformed churches in America and actually across the world and uh, evangelical churches everywhere. It is not the case that James says, what causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Oh, uh, serious conscientious differences of opinion about matters of extremely high theological import. And, And we know that that's the case. The weird thing is that that's how they're so often dressed up. And that's one of the things we have to get onto in a minute or two. Neither is it really serious practical disagreements. In practice, actually, trivial matters are perfectly capable of causing divisions and dissensions just as easily as serious ones. I have noticed no obvious correlation between emotional temperature and seriousness of the issues at hand ever in the 10 or 15 so years I've been in pastoral ministry. It doesn't seem to me that people systematically get more uptight about really significant things and are willing to let less significant things, which is most things, slide or agree to differ. And in fact, the kinds of things that have tended to cause quarrels over the last, and I just try to rack my brains to think about a few, um, I've known quarrels in churches about the right way, I kid you not, to brew tea. Now, I'm British, and and I'm willing to have a conversation about the correct way to brew tea. It doesn't involve a microwave. 
The milk doesn't go in first. Three to five minutes, freshly boiled water. But I'm not willing to concede that that's a serious enough issue, even as a Brit, and this pains me to say this, to have a quarrel about. I've known arguments in churches about how to lay out the chairs for Bible study. Seriously, I've watched a pastor and his wife argue in front of all the rest of the church staff about how to lay out chairs for Bible study. Like, Jesus on the last day will not be commending us for the way that we laid out the chairs at the Bible study because it's such a significant thing. I've known arguments in churches about the location and design of Christmas decorations. I've known... And it's the trivial things, somehow, which manage to get amplified. And one of, one of the things we've got to do is explain this. James is going to have to explain what is it that's going on in our hearts that allows us to have arguments about such trivia. I'll show you in a couple of minutes, but two observations about that first. First is, the devil is laughing his head off about this. He's absolutely killing himself laughing. Because, where do these things come from? Chapter 3, verse 6. Where, where does the tongue get its capacity to have an actual argument between brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are united by one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one body, one bread. Chapter 3, verse 6. Where on earth does it come from? The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, set among the members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. The devil would much rather we argued about how to brew tea than Arianism or something that mattered. Because if we argue about something significant, there's a small chance we might calm down and actually sort the problem out. The church might be purified. But nothing good is going to happen in the church just because we brew the tea correctly. Even though it's really important to not use a microwave. Please, come come to me for help. I'll show you. That's the first observation. Um, And and it's really significant to realise this, that the devil doesn't care what stops us being united in Christ. Actually, just the fact that we're wasting oxygen on that will do nicely. Second observation about that, um, in those cases, the issue is not the issue. If somebody, if an intelligent adult human being manages to get a raised blood pressure about the location of Christmas decorations, there's something else going on under the surface. Okay, that's the issue. Pastors have this saying, you know, the issue is not the issue, Correct? And the weird thing is, the issue is almost never the issue. So what is the issue? Well, look, he's going to tell you, James, look. Sometimes, often, there are hidden, unacknowledged, sometimes acknowledged, secret, ungodly desires, which are actually fueling the conflict which purports to be about something else. Look. Chapter um, 4, verse 2. We'll come back to the end of verse 1 in a moment. But you desire and do not have, so you murder. Just a quick aside on this. This may be a reference in the early church to actual physical violence taking place within some congregations. Um, uh, Thomas Manton, the great Puritan commentator on the book of James, he was the clerk at the Westminster Assembly. Get Thomas Manton's commentary on James if you want to dig into this epistle. It's fantastic. Thomas Manton thinks there was probably actual violence going on, but probably not everywhere. Um, And James is writing this letter to lots of different Christians, so he's probably got in mind um, what Jesus says, for example, in Matthew 5, where he he compares, you know, if you're angry with your brother, you'll be subject to the judgment, just like if you were murdering him physically. There there are many implications to the sixth commandment, and that's one of them. So um, anger, frustration, drives what? Look, 
you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Coveting, that is not just desires in the abstract, but ungodly desires. Desires for something that's not yours. Desires, for, desires that are out of proportion. Desires for something that somebody else has got because of jealousy and envy or self-aggrandizement or whatever else it is. Ungodly desires, hidden and secret. So on the surface, the argument might be about some theological issue or how to brew the tea or something really significant like that. But actually what's going on is that you're driven secretly by something else. All of us, in other words, are possessed to some degree by the kind of ruinous desires for things that are either ungodly in themselves or which not rightly ours, which can cause us to tear our lives and our families and our relationships apart when we're not actually talking about that thing at all. Can you think of examples of that when you've done that? When you, when you look back and you think, why was I arguing with my wife about that? Why did we have a quarrel about this? What? And it wasn't this, was it? It was something else. I was talking with a friend um, back in 2007 about this kind of issue in relation to um, the church scene in the US. I was living in the UK at the time, obviously. Um, my friend is an American, and I was asking him, you know, do you have any thoughts about what is driving what seemed to me in the early 2000s, there was a, seemed to be a steady increase in two things. First, squabbles between Reformed denominations. If you can remember back to the noughties, so that's not a thing in America, the, uh, the early 2000s. The, remember back to the early 2000s, there were a whole series of fairly bitter controversies. Sorry, controversies, there we are. Um, <laughs> You can never have a controversy about controversy, can't you? Um, a whole series of these bitter arguments between Reformed, confessionally Westminsterian denominations. And then at the same time, there are all these parachurch organizations popping up everywhere, Reformation 21 and Gospel Coalition and lots of other organizations. Um, and part of it was just like the internet. Everyone's kind of figuring out there's this thing called the internet. We should probably get on it. So it publicizes the quarrels. But it looked to me like there was an acceleration. I said, do you know what's going on? What's happening? And my friend said, well... You need to understand that across the Reformed and Evangelical world in America, this is back in 2007 he was saying this, theological identity is tribal. Our denominations are part of the picture, but really it's which tribe you're a part of. And tribes are associated with figureheads. So very, very roughly it goes like this. If you're, if you're Evangelical, you like Billy Graham. If you're Reformed, you like R.C. Sproul, Senior. Right? So it's do you love the Billy Graham kind of evangelistic style of ministry or do you get Ligonier's newsletters? That basically defines the two major tribes. And then he said, these are both great men, both greatly used by God. And at that time, R.C. Sproul was nearly 70 and Billy Graham was nearly 90. And he said, and I quote, there is a fight over the succession, unquote. What's actually going on, he said, back in 2007, is that you have people who are driven by unacknowledged, perhaps even unrecognized, desires to be the next big thing once those both men, as they both now have, those great men have left us to be with Jesus. They died in 2017, 2018. 
there's a fight over the succession. Everybody wants to be the next big thing. So you've got um, uh, conferences springing up, and uh, you've got movements spearheaded by individuals, and you've got uh, movements which are collections of churches trying to gather for themselves a great number of people to follow their movement. Now, just pause for a second and think about that. Is that really an ungodly thing to do? And you think, well, it's not a bad idea to try and... I mean, what's Together for the Gospel trying to do? A big conference. Like, get people together for the Gospel. That sounds like a great idea. And I'm not now accusing everybody who's involved in that of anything at all. Absolutely not. But, this is my friend's diagnosis, the trend as a whole manifests a fight over the succession. Who's going to be the next figurehead? Who's going to be the one with whom all reformed people can identify? So if that's true, what you'd expect to see is an ongoing battle within the reformed world for tribal allegiances associated with denominational and extra-denominational structures and conferences and everything else. That's what you'd expect to see, isn't it? Now look around you. What do you see? Now, the same phenomena can replicate themselves on a smaller scale. The battle for the hegemonic control of the coffee rotor. You see, because, hey, it doesn't matter if it's trivial. You can have an almighty great storm in a tiny corner of a small teacup. And it's the world that you see. And so it seems to me that James is saying the same desires that subconsciously or semi-consciously or perhaps sometimes, God help us, consciously drive those larger conflicts can drive every other tiny little trivial thing that gets us in a tangle. Secret, hidden, unacknowledged, ungodly desires. But then it gets more complicated than that, because look at verse 1. We skipped over this, and I chewed over this for... I, I, I think I am woefully lacking in the... Uh, what's the word? The psychological, technical terminology to really describe or even understand what's going on here. But just look at the end of verse 1. Um, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. Just a couple of notes on this first. Within you is literally um, uh, in or within your members. So it could be a reference to the church corporately, members of the body. So there's passions at war between different people. Or it could be members in the sense of members of an individual's body, different parts of us or different tendencies within us pulling in different directions. And in practice, probably what's going on is a bit of both. You've got the latter driving the former. Tangled, conflicted desires within us driving unproductive conflicts between us. And as I said, I, I don't think I have the, the right technical vocabulary to describe this. So forgive me, if there are psychologists out there and I don't know about it, well, I need to know about that, but um, if, if, if I'm describing things in a way which is technically not correct, then forgive me, please. And I, I, I hope I'm pointing in the direction of the kinds of things that you may recognize. What's going on, in other words, in our hearts that creates these conflicts. First thing, I think I've, I've got four things which I think could be going on. First is not talking at all. Sometimes actually raising a possible disagreement with somebody is so 
emotionally, what do you say, difficult. Uh, it's, it's hard to confront somebody about or even ask somebody about something. that We'd rather not do it. But hey, there's no problem talking about them with somebody else. It seems to me that the most significant initial fuel for many conflicts is talking about people and about what they think rather than talking to people about what they think. Because what can happen then is detach from the reality of actually engaging with this other human being. Firstly, you're left just with ideas, not a person. And once you're just doing battle over ideas, you forget that it's actually a person made in the image of God that we're talking about. And it just becomes the ideas, which then you're free or likely to be free to distort or imagine the worst about or extrapolate to the implications of and it's very hard to stop yourself from imagining the worst about somebody because they're not there to defend themselves. And all you've been doing is having a conversation with your friend. And that's all you've been doing. And by not talking with one another, we sow the seed of these bitter dissensions. Second, lazy or partial listening. It is tremendously difficult to actually understand what somebody thinks when they disagree with you. Have you noticed that? Let me, I'll give you an example. Um, you meet another Christian who, at the last presidential election, voted the other way. Now, some of you are thinking, I don't know what that would be like. <laughs> well, exactly. I met a person like that in London once. Uh, it was just before a general election in Britain, and he said uh, he had his kind of big, bright... I won't tell you, oh, It was a bright red rosette, but in England the colours are reversed, so you figure out what he believed. And, and I just said, oh, you've been on the march today. And he said, yeah, are you going to vote Labour? And I said, well, I'm going to vote for David Burroughs, who's a Conservative candidate. And he said, why? He clearly never met anybody who took a different political view from him. Really interesting. And so I tried to explain a little bit. Now, to his great credit, he was reasonably calm. But here's the problem. When you hear somebody explain their viewpoint in a situation like that, have you noticed how, how often it just sounds completely ridiculous? Have you noticed that? Yeah. And you can't understand how somebody could possibly vote that way or think that thing or have that attitude. Now, I've got to break some news to you. Nobody, okay, almost nobody, is actually stupid. Right? Most people, when they think a certain thing, it makes sense to them. Right? There is a... There is a framework that they inhabit, which may be wrong. Okay? It may be wrong, but there is a world that they inhabit within which that crazy thing they think makes perfect sense. And here's the thing. You have not understood what they're talking about unless you can understand the whole of the framework as well so that their crazy political ideas, or whatever else it is, make sense. In other words, I have to be able to... This man I'm standing with on the escalator... um, which is like a moving staircase. Do you, do you call it escalator? Yeah, escalator. Excellent. In Southgate tube station, we've got 15 seconds because that's the time it takes to get to the top. I've got to try and understand what on earth would make you vote for that party. Not, oh, you're just a nutcase because you vote Labour. And it's tremendously difficult to understand the whole world of somebody's ideas that would make being a Republican or being a Democrat, let's be honest. Yeah. Being a Democrat makes sense. Because you just can't imagine, most of you. And until you can imagine, you haven't listened. It's very, 
very... This is why um, the best debates, the best debates require the interlocutors to steel man their opponents. You heard the phrase steel manning? It's like the opposite of straw man. Straw man, you set up the weakest version of somebody's argument so you can go and knock it down easily. Right, what's steel manning? Steel manning, you take the opportunity to articulate to the person you're speaking with the best possible version of their argument and then you check that they're happy with it. And if you can see obvious flaws in it and ways in which it could be improved, you say so. So you improve it. I think it's G.K. Chesterton who said, um, you ought to be able to articulate your opponent's point of view better than he can. And if you can do that, you see you've inhabited their world, then you can have the disagreement. You see? Then you can have the debate because it's clear that you actually understand the world from within which somebody else's point of view makes sense. If you haven't done that, all you're going to think is, this is ridiculous. This is, I can't understand why you'd think that. Of course you can't, because you haven't. Third thing. It seems to me that we have a deep-seated insecurity and anxiety which often results in a kind of defensiveness. Think about it this way. Why do people interrupt each other in conversation? Think about that for a second. Somebody says something, and not all of you are the interrupting type, but some of us are. Us are. Why do we do it? What makes me interject in the middle of what somebody's saying? Because I, I just have to say the opposite. I'll tell you what I think it is. There is a kind of deep-seated... Uh, anxiety and uh, emotional strain about letting ideas with which I disagree exist. Words are so powerful. And I, I see words out there. And I think, ooh, they're wrong, they're wrong. And I can't, I can't summon the emotional strength to let them be for long enough to let the guy finish the sentence. I have to stop them, stop them, stop them. I c- it, it's not good enough for me just to just to let the guy finish and explain himself. And so uh, you end up with this, um, you get lost in the moment. You react hastily and quickly, and the the conversation stops being a conversation. It starts being back and forth, everyone interrupting everybody, and nobody's listening to anything. And the reason is that we, we simply cannot abide even the existence of the other idea in the room. Have you ever noticed that? You, and you feel like you've got to shout back. And my friends, you don't have to shout back. You know, we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment. The, 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 the right answer will be spoken. Uh, you can wait five seconds. And finally, I think uh, we polarise. We polarise discussion. So we actually end up talking about cross-purposes. Let me, um, talking at cross-purposes, sorry. I was thinking of this example just the other day. Imagine for a moment, uh, husband and wife f- manage to find a babysitter for the first time in six months, and they go out on a date together. Okay, so they go to a restaurant, and husband's like, <laughs> sees the menu, ribeye steak, $69, parts of the Wife's looking at the menu and thinking, and she's the one who actually manages the household grocery budget, and she's been scraping and tried to save and uh, trim the budget here and there because it's got a new baby, and so it's kind of awkward. And uh, So she sees, like, chicken, $12. 
husband sees ribeye steak, $49, or $69, or whatever it is, and I'd love to get all $49, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Um, and, and so what happens? Husband says, well, I think I'm going to have the ribeye. Wife says, well, mm, it's, a, yeah, it's a little bit expensive. Now, you've noticed what's happened. Husband is going to head off in this direction. Yeah, but babe, this is the first time we've been out in six months. It's our date night. It's only $20, $40, $50, whatever it is, dollars, more than the alternative. All the wife can think about is, yeah, but budget, yeah, but don't you know I've been trying to save 50 cents here and $2 there just by getting cheaper washing powder and everything, and you wouldn't want to blow $69 on a steak? And, and you're no longer talking about the restaurant menu. He's talking about ribeye, she's talking about $69. You're no longer talking about the same thing at all. You look like you're having a conversation about what to eat, and you're completely missing each other. Have you ever done that? It doesn't really matter with a $69 steak, although it might matter a bit. I'll tell you where it, where it will matter. You want to know where um, the uh, Reformed Church is going to blow up in the next five years? Let me tell you. Social justice will be the issue. And somebody will say, don't you care about social justice? And what they're saying is, God is a God of justice. God cares about those who are oppressed. God cares about the poor. Wouldn't it be better if people whose lives are um, uh, poverty-stricken had more resources? Wouldn't Wouldn't it be better if there wasn't any racism anywhere? And what the other person hears is, are you trying to bring in a kind of neo-Marxist ideology to corrupt the gospel? And we think we're talking about social justice. We're not talking about social justice at all. We're talking about completely different things. And so I confidently predict that Reformed Presbyterian denominations will split in the next probably five years, certainly ten years, over that issue. Watch. And the reason will be that they were not talking about the issue. They're conversations such as they were were corrupted by all the other things that they were or weren't saying. Now, we can do better than that. We can do better than that, provided we listen and provided we think and provided we are careful and provided we are willing to inhabit the world of the person with whom we're speaking so that, actually, yeah, I, you know, I can really understand why you think what you think. Let me, let me try and explain it back to you and tell me if I'm right. And then let me try and tell you where I think my way of looking at this question is a bit different from yours. And then you tell me, just slow down. And then there is, by God's grace, a small chance that we might not be the next casualty. I'm going to pause there and talk about prayer some other time. Let's pray together, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, we do not want to be the next casualties of prayerlessness or divisiveness or corrupted and ungodly desires in the church. So please protect and preserve us. Have mercy upon us. And enable us to listen and to see with clarity what those around us are thinking and saying so that together we may grow in faithfulness not in bitterness and frustration with one another. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.